several popular Christian songs celebrate the idea of breathing in the Spirit of God, and some Christian pastors are even promoting that same concept. Is that even possible? Do our lungs contain the presence of God, or does He dwell in our hearts? Find out on this episode of Revealing the True Light. There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar, and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Several very popular and beautiful Christian songs, worship songs, promote the idea that we can breathe in the Spirit of God. In fact, I've discovered that some pastors even align with that concept. Is that even possible? Does the Spirit of God, the presence of God, dwell in our lungs, or does it dwell within our hearts? And so that's the big question, and I believe it needs to be answered, and you'll find out why it's such an important concept as we proceed through this episode of Revealing the True Light. First of all, the song I have the most difficulty with is Great Are You, Lord, by All Sons and Daughters, which incidentally is a band that has broken up. They're no longer traveling and singing. But the, the main chorus in that song goes like this. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. Now, it's a beautiful song, and I'm sure those who wrote it and those who uh, initiated it, uh, who created it and promoted it to the body of Christ— are probably very passionate and sincere believers and may not even subscribe to what they're really communicating. So I'm not really criticizing them. I'm just critiquing the belief that is conveyed by these words. It's your breath in our lungs. Is that true? Is that even possible? Is God's breath within us? Because the way it's worded, there's no distinction made between the saved and the unsaved, children of light and children of darkness. So there's two real blatant errors there. Number one, that God's breath and our breath are synonymous. And that's going to be an underlying theme that we're going to respond to several ways. That God's breath and our breath are synonymous as we sing and as we speak. So the implied error on top of that is that everyone's breath, therefore, is permeated and saturated with the breath of God because there's no distinction made between the saved and the unsaved. That would include the most wicked people that have ever lived, like Nero, who used Christians as human torches to try and stamp out Christianity in his day, or Anton LaVey, who started the Church of Satan, 
when he breathed, was that the breath of God breathing in his lungs? If the breath of life that human beings have, naturally speaking, is synonymous with the breath of God, or even modern atheistic, self-proclaimed atheistic, pluralistic people who are trying to bring a communistic agenda into this entire world, like uh, Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum, and George Soros, who have claimed to be atheists. There is no God. Does the breath of God abide within their lungs? If human breath and divine breath are one and the same. So this has really got to be examined. This has got to be explored. What is our breath comprised of? It's the gaseous vapors that surround this planet that are part of our atmosphere. And of course, human beings are most dependent on oxygen. Is God dependent on oxygen to survive? If he left the atmosphere, would he suddenly... Uh, begin, <clears throat> uh, begin. Uh, what's the word? Uh, choking for uh, lack of breath. Would he die of asphyxiation because he doesn't have enough oxygen? Of course not. In fact, God was breathing before the world even existed. Where do I get that statement? Go with me to Psalm 33, verse 6. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And so when God spoke in the very beginning, and he breathed, out of it came the entire universe. That's a tremendous thought, isn't it? And it's an analogy, really, because our breath flowing through our vocal cords creates sounds that we mold and shape into words, and it becomes communication. So when God communicated his purposes, his will, to the void, and emptiness became all the spectacular galaxies and star systems and all the things that exist in the universe from the macrocosm to the microcosm, it all came out of his breathed expression of words. Let there be light. Let there be a firmament. But I don't believe that breath that he created the universe and all the hosts, the angels of the celestial world with, was like our breath. It wasn't made up of oxygen and nitrogen. Well, if God doesn't breathe gaseous vapors, what does he breathe? I believe he breathes his own divine essence, his own divine life. Well, does that mean that if he created the universe by the breath of his mouth, that everything contains a divine essence? We'll explore that in just a few moments, because that's a question that needs to be answered. But first... Here's another popular, beautiful, worshipful song, a song that I've sung many times and gotten teary-eyed over, and I'm sure you probably have too. However, it contains an expansion of this idea that we need to examine reckless love, right? Well, that song's been criticized because of the idea of God loving people in a reckless way, that God never is reckless. He's purposeful, not reckless. But I understand what Corey Asbury was trying to communicate, that 
if we loved someone that was a total uh, a, a total sinner in, in the gutter, someone that was in the depths of iniquity, someone would say, you're wasting your love. That person will never change. So he was likening that kind of situation to the passionate love that God has for a fallen human race. He lavishes love on people that don't deserve it, and many of them don't look like they'd ever respond to it. So I understand the whole concept of reckless love, and that's fine with me because I feel like God's love was above and beyond what he should have loved me with when he brought me into the kingdom. But there's a line in there, and again, I don't know that Corey really intended to communicate something non-biblical, quite the opposite. I believe he was just trying to praise God and worship God uh, from the depth of his being. But there's a line in there we need to expect, and that's this verse. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. Beautiful idea. You have been so, so good to me wonderful truth. But then it says, before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You have been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I couldn't, I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Wow. Uh, Such a beautiful song. But he said, before I took a breath, that means before I came out of the womb, prenatal, before I came out of the womb, you, referencing God, breathed your life in me. Once again, that's a departure from Christian and biblical doctrine because according to the word of God, we are separate from him. And only when we're born again does the spirit of life, which is a term for the Holy Spirit, come to dwell in us. And if it just said, before I took a breath, you breathed life in me, that would be a more acceptable poetical use of the idea if you didn't use the pronoun your, because to say before I breathe the breath, you breathe your life in me is to say that the spirit of God infuses the soul of every baby in the world prior to coming out of the womb. That shifts it from a Christian worldview to a Hindu worldview, a Sikh worldview, a new age worldview, because all of those and other offshoots teach and preach that there's a spark of divine life within every human being. And to find God, you look within. When I was a yoga teacher back in 1970, I taught at four universities. I ran a yoga ashram. I had hundreds of students that looked to me as their guru. I taught two main things that would achieve or help us achieve God consciousness, also called Christ consciousness, self-realization. A lot of words were applied to it. One was asanas, which are the physical exercises that are all worshipful statements and invocations to Hindu gods. And that I'll go into on another episode, and I already have. It's our most watched episode 
on the truelight.net and the most read article on the truelight.net about how those uh, yoga asanas, those physical positions, are actually invocations to Hindu gods and worshipful utterance and worshipful actions toward those gods. But uh, the other thing I taught was pranayama. And pranayama is a word describing the breathing exercises. Well, what does that mean? Prana is, well, let me explain it to you this way. Prana means life force. And the word ayama means to extend or to bring out. And according to Hindu teaching, everything has little particles of life in it that are called prana. Even the air that we breathe is filled with prana. Uh, in Taoism, you call it chi or ki. It's the life force, impersonal, cosmic energy that, that is underlying all things and saturating all things. And so when you do these breathing exercises, it's more than just expanding your lungs. It's more than just trying to breathe uh, deeper and stronger for your health's sake. You're actually trying to achieve a higher level of consciousness by becoming more saturated with prana. And that's the goal it's supposed to take you to. So when gurus teach that pranayama is more important than asanas, which are the physical yoga postures, they mean that it takes you more quickly to an awakening of consciousness. And that's all based on the belief that there's a divine essence in the air and there's a divine essence that you breathe in when you do that breath work. And that's why so many things, including Wicca and some other very dark expressions of occultism, do breath work because they believe it's a heightening of the consciousness. Well, I don't believe God breathed his life into me before I came forth from my mother's womb. That did not happen until I was born again. Besides, you cannot breathe your way into a relationship with God. In fact, years ago, I coined the acronym or the acrostic, rather, and I've said it quite often that the word yoga, Y-O-G-A, can break down into the four words, you only get air. When you're breathing that has nothing to do with coming into a relationship with God. So intimacy with God is not that mechanical. And breath, I repeat, breath does not aid you in bringing in you into the presence of God in any way. Now here's a third Christian song that I have a problem with. And it's a song that I think is one of the most beautiful Christian songs that's ever been written. And many of the lines are just absolutely awe-inspiring. It's the song, So Will I, by Hillsong Worship, and written apparently by Joel Houston. And there's a, a, a verse in there that goes like this. And as you speak, it's addressing God, and it says, As you speak, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath evolving in pursuit of what you said. If it all reveals your nature, so will I. 
I can see your heart in everything you say, every painted sky, a canvas of your grace. If creation still obeys you, so will I, so will I. And that's just a tearjerker. When you sing that song, uh, if you really have passion and love for God, it's going to grab your heart. But that line just is a line I can't sing. Whenever I sing along with that song, I avoid singing that song, that line or those two lines, really, for two reasons. First of all, I don't believe in evolution. And to say that all the creatures that were created in the beginning began evolving from that point, according to God's purpose, sounds like something called theistic evolution. I don't know for sure if that's what... Uh, if that's what's trying to be conveyed here. I don't know if Joel Houston believes in theistic evolution. And that was the thing in the song that brought the most backlash from the body of Christ. I saw comments here and there about why did they use the word evolve? Are they trying to communicate something that's non-biblical and certainly not in alignment with creationism? But I never saw anybody comment on this whole idea of the breath. And that's equally important. A hundred billion creatures catch your breath. Well, that would mean there's divine life and divine breath in the frog that's croaking out in a swamp. There's divine life and divine breath in the cricket hopping around in your backyard. There's divine life and divine breath in your dog and your cat. And if that's true in every human being in the world, once again, we're canceling out the biblical worldview that human beings are separate from God and can only be reunited with God by the washing of the blood of Jesus, by spiritual rebirth, by the Holy Spirit entering into you. Jesus said, except a man be born again, born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Neither can the kingdom of God enter us until that moment of spiritual rebirth. So God's breath is not in all the critters in your backyard. God's breath is not in all the animals that exist. And so that conveys something completely non-biblical to say that. I wouldn't mind saying 100 billion creatures catch their breath, but to say 100 billion creatures catch your breath communicates something completely different theologically, and something unacceptable theologically because it borderlines pantheism and camps right underneath the heading of panentheism. What is that? Well, pantheism is what more than 50% of Hindus believe, and that is the concept that the universe is not a creation but an emanation of God, and all physical matter is delusional. It's a delusion because it's only appearing to be physical for a season, but ultimately it will go back to Godhead because at its core, at its source, all is God and God is all. That's what pantheism means. Pan means all, theism means God. Pantheism is the idea that all is God and God is all. There's a modification of that called panentheism, and that's the belief that maybe every physical thing, material thing, is not God manifested, 
but that God indwells it, that God dwells in the tree, that God dwells in every animal, that God dwells in every insect and every human being, because that's equating natural life with divine life. However, in the Bible, there's two different words used for life. When it's natural life, uh, the kind of natural life every human being has, whether you're saved or unsaved, that's suke. Jesus said, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, what you shall put on. He's talking about physical existence. But when it comes to divine life, there's a word change. He said, he who believes on me has everlasting zoe, Z-O-E. Zoe is divine life. There's a distinction between the two. Every human being has the gift of human life. Every creature that lives has the gift of existence and the gift of life that imparts to it a certain period of existence in this world. But only those who are born again have divine life. There's a difference between the two. And now we're getting down to the real important distinction between false doctrine and true doctrine. About a week ago, I heard one of my favorite ministers make this statement, and I just shook my head and said, oh, no, don't go there, because I think he's one of the greatest preachers of the Word of God I've ever heard. Tremendous delivery of the Word, tremendous revelation, just a a a wonderful representative of the gospel. And yet, about two months ago, he put a video on, I guess it's on YouTube. It came across my uh, YouTube uh, channel. Uh, But anyway, he put a, a video on YouTube about how to achieve peace by breathing deeply and by saying, I breathe you in, Holy Spirit. And then as you exhale, say, and your strength comes suddenly, and your peace fills me completely. I breathe you in, Holy Spirit, and strength comes suddenly, and your peace fills me completely. Well, again, I don't believe your breath that fills your lungs has anything to do with the breath of God. They're two different things, and it's been confused because of Say, for instance, what Jesus did in the upper room in John chapter 20, verse 22. He appears in the upper room, and he breathes on the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So many people have misinterpreted that to mean that the breath is synonymous with our human breath. But see, he was in a resurrected, glorified state, and he was no longer dependent on on the gaseous vapors that fill our atmosphere. Jesus, I guarantee you, was breathing divine life, not oxygen and nitrogen. So we get confused. And as knowledgeable as this person is that I'm referred to, I don't even want to call him by name. I thought he should know better than this because, well, substitute some other words. Instead of saying, I breathe you in, Holy Spirit, would you say... I'm inhaling God. Well, God's not that impersonal that you can manipulate and control him by saying, I'm breathing you in, God. 
Well, of course you're not. You can't breathe God in. Well, neither can you breathe the Holy Spirit in because the Holy Spirit is God. We believe in the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has emotions. For instance, in Ephesians 4.30, it says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you've been sealed unto the day of redemption. And the Holy Spirit has his own mind. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. For instance, in in the epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 27, it says, Now he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit has emotion. The Holy Spirit has his own mind. Well, that means you entreat him, you invite him, you welcome him, but you don't control him like you control or manipulate an energy force. That's totally new age. That's totally Far Eastern doctrine. And the Holy Spirit has a will because in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, Paul and his companions thought that they would go into Phrygia and into the region of Galatia, but it says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word of God in Asia. So the Holy Spirit had his own will to enforce in Paul the Apostle's life. Don't tell me you can say, okay, I'm controlling you. I breathe you in, Holy Spirit. That's a complete deception. So I would urge in the remote possibility that this respected teacher would listen to this podcast, I would urge you to review that idea and to discard that idea. Now, again, part of the problem is the original Greek and the original Hebrew. And I'll end with this. These are some of my final thoughts. In John chapter 3, for instance, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is very important. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, capital letter S, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The Greek word translated spirit there is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. And then Jesus said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, pneuma, is spirit, pneuma. So the word pneuma is used for God's Spirit. The word pneuma is used for our spirit, which is dead in trespasses and sins until we find the Lord. Then he said, do not marvel that I said unto you, you must be born again. And then he said something very peculiar. He said, the wind blows where it wills or it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. The same word translated spirit is translated wind there. Pneuma. In the original Greek, it says the pneuma blows where it wishes. And it's using a common analogy in the Hebrew and in the Greek because often the Hebrew word ruach, which is translated spirit, and the Greek word pneuma, which is translated spirit, can also mean breath and wind. And so, 
people get it confused because they don't understand layers of symbolism, the way the mind of God works. For instance, in Isaiah 40, verses 29 through 31, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. If this was literal, then we should all be sprouting wings and flapping our wings in the wind of God and going from one place to another. I tell you what, in some traffic, I wish I could do that. If you ever hit Atlanta at rush hour, you'll wish you had wings. But God's speaking in a symbolic, poetical way, likening his presence to wind. And of course, he uses that quite often. In Ezekiel's vision of dry bones, the Spirit of God is likened to wind, but it is not literal wind any more than it is a literal dove. God speaks in symbolic ways. And when God used the word pneuma and it's translated wind, that's all symbolic. Let's go back to Adam and Eve, and then I'm going to close. This is also a source of the misconception in this particular area that's been rampant in the body of Christ. In the very beginning, God breathed into Adam, and he became a living soul, right? He became a what? A living soul. He breathed into him the breath of life. But see, human beings have dead souls now. So there's an ingredient that's missing. Many people see that scripture and just assume, therefore, the breath that's in my lungs is the breath of God. So I can breathe you in, Holy Spirit. No, no, it's different. Because commingled together, I believe, this is my opinion, this is my feeling, commingled together was natural breath, that sustained Adam's natural body and spiritual breath that sustained Adam's spiritual part of his nature, the spirit in him, the soul in him. When he fell, though, when he entered into a state of rebellion against God, I believe the spirit of God took his flight and left Adam, and he was plunged into the abyss of a lost state where he still had natural breath, but no longer did he have spiritual breath. Because God didn't breathe into Eve anyway, as far as we know. He just breathed into Adam, and then after that, the breath was passed on from one person to the next. And maybe he did after he created Eve out of one of Adam's ribs. Maybe he breathed into her nostrils also, but the Bible doesn't say it. However, when they fell, that spiritual element of the breath departed. So what are you going to do if your church sings one of these songs? You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to walk out upset and mad? No, don't have that kind of attitude. If they sing, great are you, Lord, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. You just sing the part that's right. You say, I pour out my praise, God, and kind of ignore the other. It's not an issue to get mad about, but it is an issue to be clear about. So I'm very thankful you listened to this episode of Revealing the True Light. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. 
Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Tree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.